0: Today on the Chavrusa podcast, Judaism's definition of happiness, why it's elusive, and how to increase joy in your life. In this episode, we discuss Torah perspectives on Simcha, how to navigate unwanted emotions, deep thoughts from Rev Hirsch, why so many comedians are Jewish, a cryptic Kabbalistic teaching, a writing from a Hasidic Rebbe in the Warsaw Ghetto, and a detailed analysis of the connection between Shemos and the state of America today in the Wall Street Journal, and much more. I'm Thank you so much for joining this exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have inspired some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. Today's topic in the book, Living in the Presence, that we are learning together is happiness, simcha, authentic joy. And Dr. Epstein points out in his practice of being a psychologist One question that everyone he encounters professionally wants to know is why he or she is not happy. Sometimes explicitly asked, more often implicit in their speech, is the notion of desperately wanting to experience this elusive feeling or a sense of lacking enough of it. And people make a mistake of turning it into a binary question. Am I happy or am I not happy? However, this is incorrect. There's an entirely different and better way to approach our need for more happiness in our lives. Because of course, we all want to be happy. Nobody wakes up wanting to be miserable. The Torah approach to happiness, though, isn't just a experience with psychological benefits that it concurs, but joy, unlike any other emotion, first of all, it's not just a, a one-time experience. It's central to existence, the same way that the same way mindfulness, the same way being present in the moment is essential. Like We started off all the way at the beginning in, in exploring the subject of mindfulness, that it's not just another nice thing on the list of attributes and character traits to acquire, but it's the very essence of navigating life. So too is the sense of happiness. Now, to prove that it's not just a binary question yes or no an experience that you have or don't have the torah commands us to be happy hashem instructs us to be happy now here's the thing how how do you conjure up an emotion either you got it or you don't you can't just be happy on demand like eleanor roosevelt once said no one can force you to feel anything without your consent so <laughs> you can't just be told to feel happy and then be happy it's either you have it or you don't so what's the idea what's what's the idea behind the torah directive uh to attain happiness how do we go about that and presumably presumably if we know this that you can't just conjure up an emotion on demand hashem knows this too our creator would know it as well so then what is the intent what is hashem's intent here usually it will backfire actually if you try so hard if people keep telling you to be happy and you're not happy, then you'll just be further frustrated and you'll further be trying to force something in a hole that doesn't fit. So happiness then, according to the Torah, the definition is not just an emotion, but an attitude, an attitude with a cognizance of a deep sense of purpose, equanimity, and fulfillment. When you have that sense of purpose, equanimity, and fulfillment, and you approach your entire life with this attitude of being in the moment, and in this moment, as we discussed in the episode of equanimity, as we discussed of loving the process, that the process itself is the goal. You're able to just take it the context where you're in, in that situation, and approach it with this sense of, of belonging, with a sense of purpose. That in itself will is is what we would call simcha in Torah largen, jargon. Now, simcha, Rav Hirsch points out, is very much related to the word Tzameach, Tzameach and Tzameach phonetically tz, f- uh, similar. Simcha is happiness and Tzameach is to grow. When you're in that element, when you're in that element that each moment is an opportunity for growth, each one that's being acted on in, in its very essence and you're touching the core of who you are, you'll feel this, uh, this attitude of growth, this attitude of contentment, this attitude of purpose. Now, this doesn't mean that you're nulling and dulling any uh, emotions of sadness or despair. It doesn't mean you'll be happy the rest of your life and you'll be dancing on tops of minivans for the rest of your life, blasting music and, and laughing all the time. It doesn't mean when you find out bad news that you should break out in laughter and smiles. Of course not. Now, you see this glaringly from the Torah and the Talmud when it says that, in the, when the month of Av begins, we decrease joy. And when the month of Adar begins, we increase joy. This is tractate Tanit, page 29. South not Now, what does this mean? We decrease joy at certain times. We increase joy at certain times. If it's just an emotion, well, then it just goes how you feel. But if it's this attitude, this attitude of being zoned in the moment, then at times it might take a more muted approach, at times a more elevated approach. Regardless of the nature of the event, whether you're celebrating the most miraculous or commemorating the most devastating, a person can always be in a state of simcha, always be, always be in, in where you are. You're, you're supposed to be exactly where you are, and you're using it as an opportunity to act on the moment. So it's not a fleeting burst of laughter or merriment, a, a rush that accompanies an experience, but it's something much deeper, something much more profound, and something much more true. Life is going to be filled with emotions and they're up and down nature. But Simcha can always be the anchor. Happiness can always be your anchor that's pulling you there in this this attitude that this is the moment that I am, I am in to act upon. So then Simcha, this, this joy, is not about putting on a superficial, shiny, happy face or refusing to acknowledge hard things, but it's dwelling enjoy. It's willingly accepting Hashem's plan and our role in it. Not being happy, but having the Simcha. Experiencing everything we encounter that's contained in this vast attitude of cold Simcha. A steady, unremitting sense of well-being that is the place of refuge a person could always call home. And at times in life that we perhaps find ourselves in exile from ourselves. we, We lose the sense of I. That sense of Ruff Cook described the worst thing in the world to forget, that sense of I, as we discussed in the episode of the Chavrusa last week called Inner Child. But when we feel alienated from our inner child, when we feel alienated from ourselves, those feelings, those resentment, those unworthiness, uh, when that's dominant and we're in that state of exile, we need to get out of it. And the way to get out of it is with with this trait, with this attitude of simcha. Like Isaiah, like Yeshia, the, the prophet said, For in joy you shall go out. Keep a simcha you. If you cultivate this attitude of simcha, of growth, of using every moment for what it is. Hard, dark, tough. But it's exactly where I need to be right now to become a drop better. Then you leave the exile. Then you will leave the sadness. Then you won't have that, that cloud hanging over on you anymore. That is the ultimate ex- the exodus of exile. That is going to be the fr- the key to freedom. If you want to independently, objectively evaluate, accept, refine, adapt, internalize yourself, you want to go out into the world and really become into your own. You first need to understand what influenced you. So in order to experience this this element of joy, this element of simcha, you need to become your own person, regardless of your your past experiences. Now, this is not at all an uh, idea of disassociating from your past, just the opposite. you got to go into your past, go into your home, go into your life, accept them as they are, accept the difficulties and challenges that have happened. And in in order to transcend this sadness, you need to completely accept all those pieces in your life, nothing to disavow or sublimate. Sublimate is probably the way to pronounce that word. And with this, you can understand a very deep Kabbalistic idea. The Kabbalists say the Jewish great tradition of mysticism, mystical secrets of the world, refer to a soul at its elementary level as Avram. And then once the soul actualizes itself and grows, it's called Avraham, with the extra letter He. And the Hey. this is the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, is corresponded to five languages of happiness. There's five different types of happiness in the Torah. Five different languages, the same way you have like happiness, joy, exuberance, etc. The Torah has five, Yirmiyah, Jeremiah, the prophet, Gila, Ditzirina, Chedva, of Simcha. Now, when a person starts out who you are as yourself and then you incorporate real joy and real exuberance, real confidence and purpose in your life, then you reach that elevated state of the soul of Avraham. And perhaps that's the deeper idea when Parshas Lecha, Hashem's first opening directive to Avram is Lech go to yourself. Ela go to the promised land, go to your destiny. And the way to go about that is by leaving behind our leave behind those cultural influences, those externalities, the physical locations, the physical identifications that you have. Right, Don't let that be your sole defining factor of who you are. If you want to reach your ultimate destiny, you want to reach your highest potential, you got to first discover what made you who you are today and how that is, influencing your decisions, and then be able to come objectively and say, okay, these are my flaws based on what, however I got them. These are my strengths based on however I got them. And now I'm going to be able to objectively approach the moment that I am in right now with full independence, with full clarity, with full guidance and full humility in what my character could be developed in today. That's going to be that ultimate sense of growth of Tzameach and Tzameach of happiness. This brings up what I think is a really crucial uh, element in Jewish thought. Perhaps one of the most crucial uh, ideas. And that is that there's no such thing as a bad emotion. Emotions aren't bad. Emotions are neutral. There's zero emotion that is inherently negative. Now, for example, fear. So we're sitting on uh, Sukkot this past year. We're out in our backyard in the sukkah, and playing with the kids. There's a in the swing set nearby and we hear some rustling. We turn around and there is a black beer, one of these actual beers, uh, that are growling around. Now, fear kicks in and we go running over to the kids and uh bring them back inside the uh relative safety of the suka. And it could be we went in the house at that point. We are it got to us. But the sense of fear in that sense is good because if you don't have a sense of fear, then you're opening yourself up to danger. Whereas if your whole life you're living in constant fear that you can't leave your house because what if this, what if that, what if, right? That, that's very de-ability. That's very That's a very bad use of that emotion. But the emotion itself is fine. And I think that a big part of our society conditions us To believe that only an unrefined person or only an unspiritual person will feel feelings of anger, jealousy, lust, depression. That's if you're unrefined and unspiritual. That's an experience of a deficient person. And once you have that, then there's an endless loop, a cycle of self-recrimination, doubt, guilt. And when you're filled with that, then you're sapped of, of resolve to grow because it just builds upon each other and more guilt and more feelings of dejection. And it's a it's a vicious cycle of, of, of fruitlessly attempting to suppress these feelings. And you feel guilty and regretful and then you try to overcome that guilt. And then again, you feel guilty that you can't overcome it. And you're experiencing the process again and again and again. The ancient Jewish mystics say, that the quote evil does not descend from heavens refers to emotions there's no evil that descends from the heavens no emotions are evil the only way it manifests in an evil way is how we relate to it if we f- fell the emotion if we bring it down if we use it in a destructive way so then that that emotion has become broken and now it's up to us to restore it to re reanalyze and rebuild our relationship with that emotion so there's the mida let's say of givura an emotion of of strength of awe of wonder now in a negative manifestation that will become in a sense of anxiety and fear from something bigger than you whereas in its most healthiest Manifestation will reduce this awe and wonder of the world around you, of Hashem, of the creation, and how much opportunity there is in the world, and that will instill in you this this call to action. Same is true with with Chesed and love. So there's nothing wrong with love, but if you're if you're loving the wrong things, the wrong places, that are bringing you down, so then that love is falling from its truest ideal. Whereas when when you're able to push it in a space where it makes you a greater person makes the people around you greater people so then is that's the optimal use of the emotion and the point is that you never have to uproot a negative emotion you're not excising it but you elevate you elevate the emotion what's already there you take it and you and you channel it towards a higher purpose so in general not even in terms of emotions but anything in life life experiences instead of trying to forget them and push them in the past and saying oh now I'm a different person and I don't do those things anymore find out you tap out what's that what was that root cause that was manifesting in that behavior where does that come from what's that energy and then use that energy for the good there's no energy in the world there's no feeling there's no there's no inclination there's no desire that's bad it's neutral it's all about the context and the the re-channeling and elevating it in the world. And that's why it's so crucial to have an honest self-analyzing of yourself that you really know who you are, where you come from, what's your essence, what's composing you, what's driving you, what are your different desires, how is it manifesting now, is it is it laziness that's driving me, is it an actual patience that's driving me to be able to detect these things. It's so crucial to have this ability to, to self-analyze, to self-contemplate Uh, Great quote here, Dr. Bernstein, Dr. Epstein, sorry. The problem is never with what we are feeling. The only problem is how we relate to that feeling. And hopefully once you get to that place, so then all the painful emotions or pleasurable emotions, you're able to raise above them that they don't control you but you're feeling them you're experiencing them in real time as it's happening it's always a part of you but it's not engulfing or consuming you and that way right if you're putting this into into experience you're putting this into real life so then in in the present moment being able to evaluate in a measured way instead of in a critical or condescending way why i'm feeling anxiety or why i'm feeling fear but to be able to be able to measure it and liberate the emotions um, from from that baggage, from that external baggage, and then just be happy with them. Just be what is. It's there. Those feelings are there. The the fear, the love, whatever it is. But you lose the the attachments of anxiety, of addiction, of terror, etc. Because you're able to just be there in that with Yishuv Adat settling into the moment as it is. I just want to conclude with a beautiful writing from the Pia Chesna Rabbah. The Piyot Chesna Rabbah, he was a Hasidic Rabbi in Warsaw pre-World War II, and then eventually, once the Nazis invaded and herded the Jews into a ghetto, he continued there in the ghetto amidst the darkest of dark. Uh, to continue to inspire people around them, to give them encouragement, to give them a shoulder to cry on. Uh, and he continued doing that until he was ruthlessly murdered by the Nazis in Warsaw, in the ghetto. Uh, but he has a writing here in chapter 9 of his book, HaShara of and it's quoted here in Living in the Presence. He says, when a person's emotions are aroused or if something external has generated an emotional reaction, do not heed the first instinct to compulsively seek out some sort of physical satisfaction. For example, if you feel slightly anxious, don't think that, oh, I'm hungry, and quickly run and and eat something to get rid of that feeling of anxiety. Instead, observe and attend to the feeling and see what it is. If the feeling is one of lowliness and brokenness or depression, then look carefully within and investigate where is this feeling coming from. Maybe you did something recently or did something low that you said something, you thought something improper that's, that's making you feel this way. And even if you can't remember exactly what produced the sadness because maybe everything you do in life is so hurried and all the years are passing so quickly. Um, so therefore, when, when such a thing happens, take that time, do that investigation, and you'll find something that you did or thought that's bringing you that feeling. And that's a clear sign that will tell you that when you do find the true cause of your feeling, Uh, Because that moment you detect and identify uh, that feeling, it will lift from your heart. When you find it, acknowledge it, and honestly look at it, that will bring some degree of relief. But don't be satisfied with this discovering alone. You have to accept the obligation not to do this again. Merely accepting not to do this anymore also won't suffice. You have to come up with additional strategies to overcome the problem. Whether you find a source of your feeling or not, regardless of the type of emotion you experience... Whether it's a feeling that's intrinsic or aroused from something external, be compassionate to yourself. Do not just ignore this feeling and move on. Your soul has revealed itself somewhat in this feeling. Be quick to strengthen this glimpse into this soul. Take hold of it, don't let it go. Expand the feeling so that it will continue to expand in its breadth and depth, so it will be sharper and will remain and not disappear in a flash. Deep wisdom beautiful stuff on this idea of emotions, of accepting it and overcoming it and channeling it, transfusing it with meaning and contentment, contentment ultimately achieving the goal of happiness as an attitude, not as a one-time feeling, but something that could accompany us with every moment of our lives. Today is actually the yard site, the anniversary of the passing of Rav Rafal Hirsch we quoted earlier on the idea that the words joy and growth in Hebrew are very much interrelated. And Rav Hirsch is credited with really bringing to the forefront the idea of Torah and Daracharitz living a lifestyle connected to true and authentic Judaism while at the same time being committed to the best of secular culture, secular knowledge being model citizens and upstanding people of the world, while at the same time navigating uh, the most deepest and real of spiritual journeys. And both on the topic of joy and to connect it to Rav Hirsch, there's a, a fascinating story that's told over in the Talmud in Masechus on page Chafbez 22, where... Rabbi Baroka is walking in the marketplace with Elijah the prophet. And he asks Elijah and he says, Eliyahu, who from here in the marketplace is destined to the world to come? And Elio points out two people that are walking around. And he says, those people destined to the world to come. So Rabbi Baroka quickly runs up to them and he says, What do you guys do? And they say, we are comedians. Inchi anan. Comedians. We go around and we gladden up people who are depressed. Or if we see two people that have a fight, a disagreement, a quarrel, we strive hard to gladden them up, to make some jokes, to make peace between them. We see from here the Torah is teaching us that this trait to be able to introduce joy to other people, not only in your own life, but being able to share that with others is of the highest of spiritual values. And it's not only something that it's great to have, but it's also perhaps as a tool to carry us through some of the more hard and and stressful times. Maybe this is a reason why so many of the world's most famous and successful comedians, people that have made lots of people around them so happy and full of laughter, are Jewish people. It's very much baked into the Psyche of Jews, Rav Hirsch, points out that if you look in the Torah, after the Jews left Egypt and they're going out to sea and all of a sudden they see behind them Pharaoh and his armies running. They change their minds and they're not going to go pursue and kill all the Jews. And the people then realize this is the end of the road. Here we are. Our hundreds of years of history are coming to an end. and This is the end of our journey. And how do they respond? They turn to Moshe and they say, have we ink minutes, right. Are there not enough graves in Egypt? They make a joke. <laughs> they make a joke to Moshe to make sense and make peace with their situation. They say, you have to schlep us all the way out here to the desert. Today. Why could not we just stay back in there and let them kill us there? His ability to navigate tough times with cultivating a sense of simcha, a sense of joy, a sense of positivity to be able to take the moment and try to find light in it is the ultimate task of of cultivating this sense of happiness. There were two incredible cover articles appearing on magazines this past weekend. Number one was in the Hamodia Indian Magazine, a profile on the showruns written by a prolific author detailing uh, some of their most recent life decisions. Fascinating stuff if you're in the locale that there is availability for Hamodia. The second one, and a much wider audience, that's for sure, is in the Wall Street Journal, in the Review, in the Weekend Review, the cover an article called Exodus, an American Nation, written by Dr. Leon Kass, Professor Emeritus of Social Thought at University of Chicago and Scholar Emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. And Dr. Kass begins the article and he says, what makes a people a people? What forms their communal identity, holds them together, guides their lives? To What do they look up to? For what should they strive? So these really critical questions, and he says that these these questions have risen to the surface in our turbulent times of today. Controversy swirls about the goodness of nationalism, meaning of peoplehood. So how do we go about thinking about these issues? And Dr. Kass says that he turns to the Torah. He turns to particularly the book of Exodus, Shemos, the second book of the five books of the Torah. And he says, why? He says, because this book not only recounts the political founding of one of the world's oldest and most consequential peoples, it also invites us to think about the moral meaning of communal life, the requirements of political self-rule, the standards for judging a social order for better or for worse. And he says in history, many great thinkers, both religious and not have used the Torah, have used the story of Exodus for its political wisdom in the 17th century, in the Mayflower complex, the Puritans, etc. Um, And he says, though, the case was made most eloquently by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the late 18th century, where he writes, the Jews provide us with an astonishing spectacle. The laws of Greek and Roman lawgivers are dead. The very much older laws of Moses are still alive. Any man whosoever he is must acknowledge this as a unique marvel and certainly deserves the study and admiration of all sages. So then what can we learn when we turn to Shemos? When, le- when we turn to the Torah, what can we learn? And he writes that the book really takes off, it picks off after Beratius, just after Genesis. The first book of the Torah is really the Jewish family, the story of the family, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, their struggles, their accomplishments, their, their battles, their relationships, their missteps and what they learn and, and grow from it. And now it's turning to the development of the people, coming from a family into a one-body politic. And it's also the story of what is Hashem's response to the evil and miseries of humanity. When humanity remains uninstructed, evil and misery reign supreme. And Hashem's response by instituting his teaching at Sinai is the, the way forward, the path uh, for human decency, dignity, righteousness, holiness. And at the beginning of the story, the Jews are flourishing in, in Egypt, but seeking to curb their proliferation, the new pharaoh comes and reduces them to slavery, orders the genocide, the, the drowning of all male infants, and finally, um, the oppression gets too too great to bear for uh, on the Jews, and they they are they're crying out from their oppression, and Hashem charges Moshe and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, for to secure the release of the people, uh, from Pharaoh through signs, wonders, just, and uh, as we know it today, as the ten plagues. And after the 10th and most devastating plague, Pharaoh finally relents and urges the Jews to leave, um, only to set out the next morning in pursuit of the escaped ex-slaves and uh, pursue them into the Sea of Reeds, where the miraculous events of the time allowed the Jews to survive while final, finally vanquishing their oppressors. The story continues, and in brief, the miraculous passage through the sea the nourishing subsequently uh, with the manna from the heavens that sustained them. And they're wandering in the desert. They finally arrive at Mount Sinai, where Hashem, through Moshe, offers the motley group of ex-slaves an everlasting covenant. If you will hearken to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasure from among all the nations. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And even before even hearing the details, all the Jews answer with one voice and accept the offer. Uh, Made and pledge themselves to this this covenant to this mission, and amid thunder lightning, Hashem issues the Ten Commandments, which uh, which are essentially principles, ten principles of Judaism and Torah that are to guide the people when they come to the Promised Land in Israel, and subsequently throughout their very existence in exiles and the like. Now, essential to these principles, instructions, injunctions to sanctify the Shabbos. Shabbat, to honor father and mother, family values, along with prescriptions of idol worship, murder, adultery, theft, swearing falsely, coveting what belongs to your neighbor. Uh, Next comes dozens of ordinances, not only covering crimes and torts, but aiming at ethical and spiritual uplift. They limit indentured servitude, demand proper treatment of strangers, care for widows, orphans, and the poor, institute festivals of gratitude to Asha. And again, without hesitating, the people freely embrace the constituting law. But even if the law looks complete at this point, something important is very much missing. For all these ideas and, and these ideas of, of ethical law fails to address the deep longing of human beings to be in touch with what is highest and best the ultimate good, to relate directly with the divine. And that's the final part of Exodus, the final part of the book of Shemos, which deals with this necessity. Hashem summons Moshe to the top of the mountain and gives him detailed instructions for building the tabernacle, the sanctuary intended to be the symbol of, to be that, that access point, enabling Hashem to dwell among his people and for the people to experience Hashem in their everyday lives. Now this need to have this sanctuary is revealed in the story of the golden calf, as the people down below, fearing the loss of contact with Hashem, demand that Aaron make for them a god who will go before them in Moses' stead. And once their apostasy is discovered, Moses restores a great order, or restores order at great cost, uh, purifying the camp and pleading successfully with Hashem to forgive the transgressors. Now knowing there could be forgiveness. This element learned from the story of the golden calf of forgiveness, even for the ultimate covenant-breaking transgression, the people accept the covenant again and eagerly build a tabernacle. Following letter for letter, the detailed instructions, the creator of the world is at last known by a nation of the creatures made in his image. Throughout the story, Hashem and Moshe provide initiative, and direction, but the people themselves gradually shedding their slavishness, increasingly become co-partners in the venture. And although the story has just begun and many trials and failures lay ahead for the Jewish people, they have embraced the grand founding vision of a kingdom of priests and holy nation who will carry to all of humankind the example of Hashem's way for a better life. Dr. Kass continues that you indispensable to the Jewish people's founding, is the unique philanthropy of Hashem. That unlike indifferent natural powers and concepts that were previously understood of what God is, Hashem enters a covenant with human beings, aiming to make them holy as He is holy. Unlike the edicts of despotic human rulers, His law applies equally to all and intends everyone's benefit. And He is merciful and gracious, willing to forgive in the presence of repentance of return, repudiating the tragic view of the world and a view that was later introduced by those that wanted to replace the Torah. He encourages high striving despite the recurring likelihood of failure. So there's really three parts of the story, the slavery and deliverance, the covenant and the law, and the worship and relationship with Hashem have become the three pillars of the children of Israel's enduring national existence really cool also that it becomes the three pillars of the opening of Perkei Avos. The world stands on three things, Torah, Avoda, and Gemilut Chasadim. Torah is the personal key to freedom, the true freedom, uh, not just from slavery of bondage, of shackles of iron, but slavery of a mental form of slavery, which we discussed last week's uh, Chavrusa podcast. And the second part of avoda of having that relationship with Hashem, and the third part Hasadim, of covenant and law and relationship with other people, relationship to self, relationship to others, relationship with Hashem. Now, this becomes part of the national existence, the tale of slavery um, in prosperous Egypt and the astonishing deliverance and its deepest messages, deepest spiritual messages. The first pillar is the constitutive national narrative, which is memorialized memoralized and we told annually by parents and children each year on um, Passover during the Seder and absent a relation a relationship with Hashem, the Jewish people might still be enslaved to man. Remembering our own servitude, we should deal kindly with the vulnerable. That's the message of of Egypt. Now the second component, the covenant that in the constituting law, the second pillar, establishes the way of life under which people are to live and rule themselves, not content merely to provide instruction for rectifying mutual wrongdoing. The law of the halakha is also a moral teacher. It's an ethical teacher, touching on all aspects of human life. Its guidelines protect human dignity against abuse and self-abasement and encourage reverence for life and property, care for the needy, fair dealing, in all transactions. Aiming beyond justice. It's not just justice. Just justice not just tzedakah, it's chassad. The law seeks to promote grace and gratitude, lifting human beings to fulfill the promise implied in man's being in the image of Hashem. Third pillar is fulfilled and satisfied in the human longing for something better than our mortal selves, a place for the community to meet, to seek and commune with Hashem, the center of communal life. It's a home for showing gratitude, seeking, seeking forgiveness for for Davening, for real prayer in in its deepest concepts and and sacrifice of of our own lusts and desires, for dedicating personal and collective life to serving Hashem and his higher purposes for humankind. Doctor Cass asks, What can today's American reader then carry away from this story? Does it have universal contemporary significance? And he says thoughtful people have long detected Numerous parallels between the United States and Biblical Israel. Americans owe our origins to an escape from despotism and a desire for religious freedom. We too are particular and distinctive people with a universal creed. In announcing our birth, we declared all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We have a constitutional, constituting national law. Proved by the consent of the people, and when in mid-19th century our union was challenged and its founding creed repudiated, we renewed it through the sacrifice of a bloody civil war. So that, as Abraham Lincoln said, this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. For most of its history, America was a nation characterized by reverence as much as by love of liberty. Our constitution is not neutral between religion and irreligion, although unlike other nations we have no established religion. Our most fundamental right enshrined in the First Amendment protects religion's free exercise. Times have changed, though, and what calls out from today's or to today's reader of Exodus to today's understanding of this three pillared structure of Israel's founding that a people to endure and flourish need a shared national story, accepted laws and morals, and an aspiration to something higher than our own comfort and safety. A devotion to technological progress, economic prosperity, and private pursuits of happiness won't sustain a story when it is contested or when the story is despised by others, when morals are weakened and national dedication is abandoned. The bonds of shared history create attachments that induce people to care concretely, Concretely, for each other. And universal law recognizes and advances the dignity of all human beings. People who remember deprivation are likelier to feel sympathy for strangers and compassion for the needy than those familiar only with prosperity. People who have experienced tyranny are likelier to treasure freedom than those who have known nothing else. People nourish collectively in the wilderness are likelier to be grateful for the blessings of existence than those who regard human life as a zero-sum game and grasp all they can for themselves. So we have a need of abiding the wisdom in the Ten Principles, the Ten Commandments, and the Ordinances, the importance of honoring father and mother for a decent family life and cultural transmission, the human dignity and equality promoted by Shabbos, by Shabbat, the reorienting of the heart toward shareable goods, in the injunction against coveting the high valuing of human and animal life and limb the special regard for a pregnant woman and the child she carries the humane treatment of the stranger the compassionate protection of widows orphans and the poor the devotion to truth and justice and disputes at law the teaching of communal gratitude through sacred festivals the inspiring call to imitate hashem in his holiness against degrading human productivities Halakha not only prohibits wrongful conduct and threatens civil peace and order, it also promotes human, or that threatens civil peace and order, it also promotes human excellence and directs the soul toward the divine source of all blessings. And he concludes, as Rousseau argued 250 years ago, this timeless book remains an indispensable resource for thinking about the good life, the good community, freedom and law, justice and holiness, the meaning and purpose of our existence. It deserves and rewards our most serious attention. Now what Dr. Cass has discovered and what he beautifully elaborated on is the aim of the Habrusa podcast, exploring the wisdom, exploring the ideas that have inspired history's greatest men and women for over 3000 years, the timeless gems that are there that we could use in in the, in the most deep and relevant and profound ways, and implemented in our own lives, in our own communities, countries, etc. Thank you very much for listening to the Chavrusso podcast and this episode. If you did enjoy it, please listen to previous episodes and future episodes. Share your thoughts, share any questions, any sort of feedback. You can reach me, Moshe Shombra, on my phone number 347-893-4467 or through different uh, social media channels. Thank you so much and hope you have a wonderful day.